The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the reading of the Lord's Word um, from Genesis 43. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you, and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it, is, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They rose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal to make ready for the men are to, be di- are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, It is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks for the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon, um, fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we come down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Our money is in full weight. So we have brought it again with us and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the men had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. 
When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father still well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they said, Your servant our father is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his his brother, and he saw a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, and then by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with them, with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. And Joseph and Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. How are we doing? Good. Uh, My name is Justin. If you're just joining us, um, this is Sacred City Church. We welcome you. I'm the pastor here at Sacred City. And uh, we want to just welcome you into our gathering. This is just a portion of what we do uh, week in and week out. That this is kind of not all we are. The church is made up of the people of God. And the people of God gather throughout the city, throughout the week, in missional communities where they live life together. Um, where they display the gospel to the watching world and to their neighbors, while at the same time speaking the gospel to each other. And um, this, and then we all, as missional communities all across the city, as missionaries all across the city, we come together and worship on Sunday morning. So we welcome you here, here this morning. Um, I've got a couple, three announcements here I, got, I need to make really quick, but they're all very important. Number one, at Sacred City, we are all about making disciples, right? Making disciples planting churches, and renewing the city. And for us to do those three things, um, it takes men to step up and fill the leadership roles that God has placed upon them, and, and also women to step up and fill those leadership roles as well. So one, one of the ways that we raise up those men and women to lead the church, um, to lead missional communities, to make disciples and, and plant churches, is through um, a training program that we call Porterbrook. And um, Porterbrook, Omaha, you can find it at porterbrookomaha.com. And uh, we've got several men and women that are joining our first year of Porterbrook. And we've got several men and women that are in second year of Porterbrook. And what it is, it's a two-year theological training program. But it's not just theological training. It's heart development. It's, you're going you're gonna to be uh, trained in your competency, in the competency of Scripture, in your competency of, of being able to apply the gospel, being able to, to um, speak the gospel to one another, be able to understand culture. Um, you're really going to be trained to be a good missionary. It's also going to be uh, character development, so it really works on your heart. You're in a group. You don't just learn and read books and just learn up here and, and get a big head. 
but you live out in a cohort, a group of three or four other men or women, and you walk through this stuff together so that the, the gospel and the truths that you're learning and the theology that you're learning actually gets applied to your heart and worked out in the day-to-day um, of our life. So we put a lot of emphasis on Porterbrook, Omaha. It's one of the most important things we do around here. I think we've had 10 or 12 guys graduate so far from it. Um, and we are, we've got, I don't even know, eight, looks like eight to 10 people signed up for first year. If you're thinking about doing it, this is your last week. August 1st is the deadline. Porterbrookomaha.com. You got to fill out your application there. It's only 600 bucks a year. Okay. It's, it's a, portion of the cost of seminary. It's for every, everyone. So it's not just, Oh, I'm going to be a pastor someday. If you want to be a missional community leader, if you just want to be a better disciple and a better missionary, um, one of the things that Jesus does as he makes us disciples is he, he makes us into learners, people that are constantly growing, constantly learning. So we've provided this for you. Um, and I, I really encourage you, if you're thinking about it, step up and try it, step up, and do it. Um, personally, I had a full-time job. Um, I had two kids at the time. I was a church planning resident at the time and I was finishing my regular degree and I did Porterbrook at the same time. So it's not like, well, we just had a baby or, well, I've got a full-time job or, well, I got a busy schedule. You can do it. You can make it happen. Um, I, I promise you, if you want to put your, uh, put your mind to it, you can make it happen. So if you're on the fence, I want to encourage you men and women alike to jump on the bandwagon here and uh, develop your leadership, develop your theological understanding, get trained as a better missionary and sign up for Porterbrook Omaha dot com and that or that's where you can sign up uh secondly um for the first time at sacred city we're doing church membership this is a very important process it's very important for us listen many of us because of the culture and the milieu of the culture that we grow up in right now we have this kind of rejection of authority we don't like authority we don't like institutions we we say things like well i can go to church and be a christian and not be a member and actually if you go back in the history of the church that is almost uh, that's an asinine thought back in our history that to be a, a member of the body of Christ would mean to be a member of the church. So if you're here at Sacred City and maybe you're just checking us out, but you want to find out more about us, come to this class. It starts next Sunday. It's going to be at our offices at the center on Brady Street from three to five. Um, we're hoping we went three to five so the kids can go down to nap right after service. And then uh, you can get out of there and have dinner and so put the kids dead down at night. So three to five, come find out about the church, find out about what church membership is. Um, and then if you, if you call sacred city, your home, you're a member of a missional community. You, you, this is your home. I want you all to go through this membership process. And the process begins on the city. The city is our mobile, um, online, um, it's kind of like our Facebook. It's our online connection tool. This is where all the announcements are. This is where all the details are. So please sign up on the city. You can do that at back of the box office later and start this membership process. There's steps in the process that you can't go on to until you finish them on the city. Okay. So please jump in that this week. Uh, it's not too intensive. There's some reading for you to do to understand, but this is for everyone, um, who seeks to be a, a member of the church. And we really desire for you to be members. We want to know who we're on mission with. We want to know who's with us um, as we serve this city. Um, and it, it just helps me as a pastor to know who am I responsible for? Who am I shepherding? It also helps us know who are brothers and sisters. So if one of you stops coming, we can pursue you and we know how to love you and we can um, uh, know how to 
to love you well. And then lastly, exciting. God has been so gracious and so good to us and given us this beautiful day today. We um, get to celebrate uh, our picnic right after this. So at Jungy Park, if you, um, if you want to join with us this afternoon right away, go home, get changed, um, bring a side out. We're going to meet at Jungy Park around noon. Whenever we get home, get changed and get there. Um, we're providing some adult beverages. We're providing the meat. Um, and, the, and the hamburgers and the hot dogs on the grill. It's going to be a great opportunity to hang out with our family and enjoy one another and enjoy this beautiful weather. So get your family. Come on out. Get some good clothes on. We're going to be playing some lawn games. We've got softball, volleyball. It's going to be a blast. All right? And I hope it gets really competitive. That's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping it gets off the chain competitive. All right? <clears throat> it's not a good church picnic unless somebody's cussing somebody out. <clears throat> so, all right. All of that. Now let's get back to it. We've got a lot to cover today, and let me pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that the only reason we're here is because you, by your Spirit, have drawn us in. You have called us from the highways and the hedges. You've called us from all across the state, all across the cities. Um, People even visiting us today, they're not here by accident. They're here by the sovereign hand and the sovereign plan of the Almighty God. And this morning, as we jump into this 43rd chapter of the book of Genesis, I pray that you would give me wisdom, that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cord, that you would allow us to have ears that hear what the Spirit is saying. Jesus, you um, spoke convicting words to many people that were in your hearing, and you said they don't have ears to hear and they don't have eyes to see. Those ears of faith and those eyes of faith, may you grant us this morning ears of faith and eyes of faith. We ask all these things, Father. We ask these things for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So at Sacred City, we don't do too many fancy things around here. We have a lot of scripture, if you have not found out through our liturgy. And one of the things that we do is we preach through books of the Bible. Um, It just so happens, if you're joining us, that we are in the 43rd chapter of the book of Genesis, one of the longest books of the Bible. We've been working our way verse by verse through this book. This is actually the 45th week, 45 weeks through the book of Genesis. Okay, And one of the things you're going to notice about this story, you just heard a lot, right? That was a lot of verses, but we're actually in the middle of the story of Joseph. We're in the middle of what we, I call Joseph's ruse. Okay, Joseph's kind of putting on this performance, let's say, for his brothers. And just by our reading today, just by chapter 43, you're not going to really understand what's going on. So I'm going to need a lot of grace this morning. If you're just joining us, if you're new here, um, I hope that I can catch you up to speed. If you find it confusing, go back and listen to us, our, some of our other podcasts. Um, all of our podcasts are on our website at sacredcitychurch.com or on iTunes. Um, but there's a lot of backstory that goes in to today's story. Okay, so Joseph is in the middle of kind of tricking his brothers. Do we, let, me, let me set the stage. Joseph's got 12 brothers, one of 12 brothers, right? He's his favorite. Jacob is his father. Um, he was born of, his, of, his, of his dad's favorite wife. That was backstory. Go back and read that. He had four wives. God did not approve. He was kind of um, born from Jacob's favorite wife. He's kind of Jacob's favorite son. So like a horrible father, Jacob gives him this special kind of pimp coat to walk around and let everybody know how special he is. And his brothers hate him because of it. 
And not only that, Joseph was an incredibly arrogant young man. He would have these dreams that all of his family, including his father, bowing down and worshiping him. Right? And then he would walk up to his brothers and go, hey, do you know what this means? Um, I had this crazy dream last night that all of you guys were bowing at my knees and bowing, bowing on your knees at my feet. And, and do you, what, do you, what do you think that means? You know? Right? And, I know what, and the brothers, they didn't say, well, th- you know what we think it means? I think God's going to exalt you. Well, they looked at him and said, you know what I think we, think it was gonna, we think it means that we're going to kill you. <laughs> that's what we think it's going to mean. Right? So one day they're out pasturing, and that's exactly what they do. They say, let's kill this kid. We can't stand him. Dad loves him more than us. He's arrogant. He's a little punk. Let's throw him in a pit and just kill him until God he died. <laughs> right? And that's what they do. And then one brother goes, no, you know what? We can make some money off this deal. <laughs> Let's just not kill him. Let's make some money. So they end up selling him, right? This is great. Thanks, brothers, right? Brothers sell younger brother to some slave traders. They send him off. He goes to Egypt. And they think they're done with him. They think he's probably been killed. He's probably, you know, they have no idea what happened to him. But unbeknownst to them, the sovereign God over all the universe... The God who nothing escapes his plan. The God who plans every little detail of our lives. That God is maneuvering positions and maneuvering people into place that he needs to take place. That he needs, he needs Joseph to be a certain type of man in a certain place at a certain time. So God is maneuvering this man around and Joseph goes through 13 years of slavery 13 years of monotony, 13 years in a dungeon, 13 years of suffering. And through this suffering, God chisels away the pride. He chisels away the arrogance. He chisels away the immaturity. And he creates a man of wisdom, a man that has a depth of character, a man who is a strong leader. He he creates this man in the dungeon. And then in one swift moment, Joseph gets to interpret this dream of Pharaoh. And he goes straight from the pit all the way to the palace in one moment after 13 years of difficulty and struggle. That God was forming him in the darkness and exalted him into the light. And now, by an amazing string of circumstances, right? Complete happenstance. Fate was shining on him. Karma, no, absolutely not. The sovereign hand of God was at work. And there's a famine in all the land. Now, this is a worldwide famine. Okay? This is a worldwide famine, but because of the wisdom of Joseph and because of the God-given wisdom of Joseph, Joseph has had Egypt store up 20% of all the produce of everything they produced in those seven years. This was wisdom and foresight that God gave Joseph. They stored up 20% of all their grain in the, in, in the storage places all throughout the, the nation. All right? It was uh, decentralized all over the region. They stored up all this, this, this grain. And now there's a worldwide famine. And guess what happens? Everybody in the world has to come to Egypt to buy food. Egypt was already the most powerful nation in the world. Pharaoh was the most powerful man in the world. Joseph has been elevated to the second in command, basically the prime minister of Egypt. Now he is God's man in God's position at second, at the second hand to Pharaoh. And now all the world has to come to Egypt to seek out provisions. All right. Because of the wisdom of God given to Joseph. And guess who's in that whole, that whole world. Joseph's family, Jacob and Joseph's brother. I love last week, Sam preached and, um, (laughs) the classic dad statement, right? Jacob gets hungry and he goes, dude, kids, 
Quit looking at yourself and get out there and get some food. I mean, I just love that statement. What are you looking at each other for? Go and do something. Get a job. Go to Egypt and get us food. And they go to Egypt and they don't even know it. They're going to get food and they're standing before who? Joseph. Their little brother who they think is dead, who they lied about and cheated on. They're now standing before Joseph. This is an epic tale. This is one of the greatest stories ever told. And it's a true life story. They're standing before their little brother and they're begging for food. They're bowing down before him. The dream that God gave him is coming true. God is not a man that he should lie. God does not deal in maybes and, and, and that might happen. When God speaks, it's as good as done. When God says that the whole world will be recreated for his glory, it's as good as done. When God says that death has been defeated, it's as good as done. When God says your sin has been taken care of, it's as good as done. It doesn't matter how we feel. It really doesn't. It's going to take place or it already has happened. It's just amazing. So they're standing before their brother, but Joseph, he's going to play this out. They don't recognize him. Why don't they recognize him? He's shaved, bald. He's got the big neck thing going on from the, the, the Egyptians. He looks just like an Egyptian. He doesn't look like a Hebrew that would have a long beard. And he doesn't look like Joseph. Obviously, the, the pimp coat is no more. They can't recognize him by that, right? He's been exalted by God and exalted by Pharaoh. So they're standing before him. They're begging for food. He gives them food. They pay for it. And this is the thing that happened. This is beautiful. Last week, they pay for it and he sends them on their way. But he tells their servants, put their money back in their bag. They get halfway home. They open their bag. Their money's there. And they they freak out. Oh, no. Did we forget to pay? What? Like, can you, have you ever done that? Like you, you grab something at a store or something and you walk out with it and you forget to pay and you're like, do I go back and pay? And like, act like admit that I stole, you know, what do I do? Yes, you go back and pay. They're freaking out about it, right? They don't know. And they think this Pharaoh was seen as a God. So they, they, they've kind of sinned against the second most powerful man in the world. What do we do? Well, like good little sinners, they go, ah, let's just go home and talk about it. So they go all the way home. Back to, back to dad, they're, and now they're, they're feeling pretty guilty. They're feeling pretty af- afraid. They're afraid to go back. And at the same time, if you remember, Joseph said, you must keep, one of your brothers must stay here um, as you send everybody back. I want you to go get your youngest brother, Benjamin, and come back. So, and Benjamin has now t- replaced the, the, the position of Joseph as Jacob's favorite son. So there's a lot of backstory going on here, okay? So now they're back in the land of Canaan. They're back with dad. And one of their brothers is still, one of the brothers is still in Egypt as collateral for them to come back. Okay? That's where we are today. Now, Joseph has devised this complex and detailed plan. There's a lot. One of the things I challenge you to do is go back and read like 10 chapters of the book of Genesis. This, these last 10 chapters, because they really need to be read in one big chunk to get the whole plan. This is a complex plan, a lot of moving parts, and it's just, a, it's brilliant. Okay. Now what's he doing? Why is Joseph doing this? Why doesn't Joseph just go, I'm Joseph, right? Suckers. I told you you're going to bow at my feet. Like, why doesn't Joseph do this? Right? He's working things out. This is a very complicated plan. Listen, to show his brother's grace. To show his brother's grace. Actually, his whole family grace. Now, at the same time here, he's confronting past and present sins, but he's doing it like in this whimsical way. Why? Why is he 
Joseph tricking his brothers into owning their sin so they might experience grace. That's what he's doing. He's tricking them so they might own their sin and and thereby experience grace. We cannot experience grace until we own our sin. And we actually see this tactic um, used several times throughout the Bible. We saw it a few weeks back with Tamar and Judah, who Judah was mistreating Tamar. So she dressed up like a prostitute. He ends up sleeping with her. And then he judges her and he says, she gets pregnant by him. And she, he goes, you are pregnant outside of marriage. We should kill you. And she goes, yeah, I am pregnant outside of by, by marriage. And um, this is the guy I slept with. And she holds up his ring and his staff. And he goes, oh, those are mine. Oh, right. So he gets tricked into owning his own sin. And there, because he owns his own sin, then God gives him grace in that. Right? God gives him grace, and so he experiences the God, he kind of experiences the grace of God. He says, I am a sinner, and only people who admit that they're sinners receive the grace of God. Only sinners need the grace of God. Right? So he admits his grace, he experiences the grace of God. We also see it when Nathan, later on in the Bible, when Nathan confronts David in his sin. David, this is kind of a common theme, right? David sleeps with someone who's not his wife, he loves her. He ends up killing her husband. And then Nathan comes to him and tells him this brilliant story about a sheep, a little special. This this guy had this little special sheep and that's all he had. And he loved it. And he petted it. And he said, pretty sheep, pretty sheep. I love my little sheep. And he, he, he cuddled this little sheep. And then some man came up and took that sheep and killed it. And David said, whoever did that deserves to die. And he goes, that's you. And that sheep was Bathsheba. And he's grieved and he repents and he seeks God and God gives him grace. See, oftentimes, and Jesus did the same thing with the religious rulers when he's telling parables. He would trick them into seeing their sin, owning their sin and seeking repentance. And this is why all of us desperately need to understand and experience grace. But... There's a big but right here, but every single one of us are also born with an innate disposition that resists grace. John Piper says that we are all born as little legalists. We were born to resist grace. We, the, the essence of legalism is when faith is not the engine of obedience, So I'm doing things because I think I'm a good person. I'm doing things to prove that I'm a good person. Not because I've received something by faith. I'm earning something. I'm working for something. I'm building a reputation. It's ultimately self-righteousness. Now, the church is full of self-righteous people. People who obey the rules, people who come to church, they go to Mishnah community, they do the religious things, and therefore they think that God owes them something or God should bless them. Or, or um, I mean, there's many churches across the United States that teach that you can kind of twist God's arm by giving money financially or serving, and then therefore he's, he has to bless you and give you the things that you want on this world, on this earth. And that's self-righteousness, that's legalism. Right now, listen, I, I was reading, I, I read this this week, 
A minister who, as he got older, he he was so upset with being in the church where everyone was so self-righteous. Everyone kind of thought they were better than other people. And they they looked down on those who sinned in different ways than them. And they kind of acted like um, they didn't need to repent anymore. And this is one of the reasons at Sacred City that we do liturgy. And every single week we repent of our sins as a congregation. Because I want everyone who comes into our gathering to know that everyone in this gathering is a sinner. Doesn't matter if you got drunk last night or you spent six hours reading your Bible. We all are sinners that stand at the equal playing field of being sinners that need the grace of God. So this minister gets so fed up and so tired with the self-righteousness that he sees in the church. He says, I'm going to go to places now. I I hate being around people who think they're good, think they're better than other people. So he started spending all of his time in prisons and in homeless shelters and ministry. Guess what he found out? It's awesome. He wrote an article about it. He says, to my amazement, the people in the prisons and the homeless shelters were just as smug and self-righteous as the people in the churches. It was never their fault. They were better than most people. They weren't like the guy in the prison cell next to them. Nobody understood them. I'm really a good guy. I'm, I'm not a sinner. I was framed, right? It wasn't my fault. My dad wasn't there. I didn't. All the excuses, self-righteousness, even in prisons and homeless shelters. Then the minister began to counsel people that had bad self-images, people who cut themselves, codependent people. He says, at le- he says this, at least these people hate themselves. They won't be self-righteous. They won't look down their noses at other people. They hate themselves. They tell everybody about it. They tell them that. They, they tell themselves, I'm a horrible person. They have low self-images. But the amazing thing was, he began to find out that they were just as self-righteous in their unworthiness. They gossiped, and they were bitter, and they felt morally superior to the people who weren't as messed up and complicated as they were, who weren't as sensitive as they were, who had mistreated them, though, of course, they had gone out of their way to be mistreatable. And this minister, he began to realize that we're all the same. All humans are the same. Everybody thinks they're a good person. Everybody thinks whether you have a good or you have a bad self-image, whether you're very religious or extremely irreligious, whether you're Saul, right, the, the chief religious man in the New Testament, or your Al Capone, who Al Capone would say, I'm really a good guy. Look at all the people that I help on the south side of Chicago with my feeding programs. Right? Al Capone. Everybody says, I'm good. Everybody says, God, give me good things because I'm better than most people. I meet the majority of the people that I meet that, that, that don't understand the gospel. I say, what do you think happens when you die? Well, I think there's a heaven. And I think there's a hell. Well, how do you get to heaven? Well, I think that God's going to look and he's going to weigh my good deeds against my bad deeds. And I think that I'm a pretty good person and that I'll probably squeak into heaven. I think that's, and that is not what the Bible teaches. The, listen, and it's very, it's, I want us to get this today because it's, it's our culture, the religion that we grow up in communicates to us something that's different than the entire thrust of the Bible. Hear this this morning. Hear the point of the Bible. This is the point of the Bible. No one is righteous. 
No, not one. There is zero ground for self-righteousness. Because we're all sinners guilty before God. So when I say, when a person says, I hope my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, that's self-righteousness. I hope in myself I'm more righteous than than I've been unrighteous. And the Bible says, I'm sorry, but that is not the case. Once you're a sinner, you're fully, completely, utterly unrighteous. And here's the crazy thing in the Bible. If I go to the store and I buy a weed eater and I bring that weed eater home and that thing doesn't work, guess what I do with that weed eater? Well, if I can't take it back, I throw that thing in the garbage, right? If it doesn't do what it's meant to do, I get rid of it and I'll have to go get another, another one, right? But God, in his grace, he created us to be holy. He created us to obey him completely. And we rebelled from that. And in his grace, he doesn't just throw us in the garbage and recreate things. In his grace... He says, I can make it right and I can fix it and I can recreate them. So he does that through faith. So here we are. Last week, everyone, all of us, I hope you hear this this morning. With me, you are a self-righteous person. Now listen, I had this girl I worked with one time. And she found out I was a pastor and she found out I was a Christian. She was not, she was an agnostic an agnostic, really, that just means she's an atheist that doesn't have the guts to say she's an atheist. Uh, but she was an agnostic. And what she said was, you know, I'm so sick and tired of all you Christians. You are so judgmental. You are so narrow. Uh, you are so intolerant. And, I, and I, I said, well, you know, it's funny. Like your intolerance to my intolerance is kind of overwhelming. And she went... I've never actually thought about that before. Listen, she was reacting. She didn't like the self-righteousness that she saw from the church, but how did she react? In her own self-righteousness. I'm so much better than those people who are narrow. I hate those narrow-minded people. Well, that's a narrow statement. That's a narrow-minded statement, right? We can't get away from this type of thinking. We are are self-righteous at our core. And last week in chapter 42... It showed us the amazing self-righteousness of Joseph's brothers. Listen, after all they had done, I doubt there's anyone in this room. There might be, who knows? I doubt there's anyone in this room who sold their little brother into slavery and then went home and created this elaborate plan, a bloody robe and said, dad, they killed him. Something got him. What got him? We didn't see it, but it was bad, right? Like, I doubt there's anyone, like, maybe he was hit by a truck. I don't know. She was gone, right? All that's left is this coat. Like, this is an elaborate plan. They go through, I mean, Jacob's weeping and grieving, and the brothers have to live. This is 13 years later. The brothers have been living with this guilt and shame and knowing their sin for 13 years. But what do they say in chapter 42? They say this in verse 31. When Joseph's kind of mistreating them and he's tricking them, he, he goes, we, they say, we are honest men. We are, we are honest men. That's the label they give themselves. Now listen, if you've sold your brother in slavery, the word honest no longer goes on your resume. If you're writing in your resume and you want a character reference, bet, you better not put the word honest on there. If you sold your brother in slavery and you're still living in a lie, you still have not repented and admitted your sin. You're not an honest person. Right? <clears throat> to me, this is just absolutely amazing. 
And it should, it should amaze us because human beings have an amazing propensity towards self-righteousness. And this propensity towards self-righteousness is not easily broken. But it must. But here's the key. This propensity towards self-righteousness, it must be broken if we're going to experience grace. If we're going to understand and experience the gospel, God has got to smite us where we say, I am nothing but a sinner. We've got to come to that broken and humble and contrite place if we're going to experience the grace of God. So here we are, chapter 43, open up your Bibles, verse 1, or open up your apps. Um, you can, Sacred City has their own app in the iTunes store if you want to find it there, um, or your Version app, 43, verse 1, here we go. Now the famine was severe in the land. So they're back at home, the famine is still raging, it's actually going to be seven years of famine, and they've got to, and look what Jacob says, Uh, Verse 2, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. Okay, number one, we should see that these brothers were supposed to come right home, get their younger brother Benjamin, and then go back to Joseph. But they don't do that. The brothers get home, and then they eat all their food, right? They get home, and they wait till the last possible moment. Wow, procrastination, right? This is what they're doing. Procrastinating to the last moment. I mean, they're scraping the edges of the grain. And finally, dad looks and goes, hey, go back and get grain. Now, this is kind of funny to me because I'm like, "Did, did dad forget the deal? The deal was, if you want more food, you better come back with Benjamin. So here we go. But Judah says... Oh, actually, stop right here. It's interesting to note how large of a role food plays in the story of Joseph. Actually, food plays a huge role in all of our stories. It's something that we all share as human beings. Every one of us needs to sit down and eat every day of our lives. And it's something that we don't even think about because we're in a culture that we have extra money. Very few of us struggle to actually put food on the table. We, most of us go out to eat several times a week. So we don't think about the dominance of food in the story of all civilizations. And, but who we eat with and how we eat is a great rhythm that can display how much we really believe the gospel or how the gospel, when the gospel changes your life and the gospel changes your heart, it also changes everything about you, including the way that you eat and who you eat with. So one of our rhythms at Sacred City is to eat together often. That's why when we have a picnic like this, it's not like a throwaway thing. Like, oh, it's a picnic. I don't need to go. Or I no, no, no. We want all the family and all of our friends and all the people that we're on mission to, to come eat with us. Why? Because Jesus often sat down with those he was on mission with and those he was on mission for and towards, and he would eat with them. He ate with sinners and saints alike. He ate with the religious. He ate with the irreligious. And it's one of the ways that we can kind of in a sense, display the gospel or proclaim the gospel through breaking bread, through our sharing with, with other people. It's one of the things that we do often. So at Sacred City, we eat together weekly with our missional community family and missional communities. We eat together when we celebrate. Uh, we just launched a new missional community to Illinois. Praise God. It looks like that one could be multiplying again soon. God's been really gracious. So we celebrate, we throw a party, and we eat together. It's one of the things that we do. Sacred City. We want to be eating together with the missional community family. We want to be eating together with those we're on mission towards. So we often invite people, our neighbors, our friends, into our house to have dinner with them. It's one of the things that we do at Sacred City. So we see in this story that it's a lack of food 
that causes the brothers to travel to Egypt. And then once they get to Egypt, uh, they get their food supplies, head home, leaving one brother behind its collateral. And once they're back in Canaan, their food supply begins to run out and that forces them to go back to Egypt. God is using a global famine and their natural need for food to providentially get them into Egypt where they can experience the grace of God. And what we're going to see later on in this chapter is that this chapter actually ends with a feast. It starts with a famine, but it ends in a feast. It's a beautiful depiction of the gospel. We start hungry and we end with full bellies. Let's look at verse 3. But Judah said to him, this is uh, one of the brothers said to him, the man, I love this. Now look at 14 times in these next verses, Joseph, because if they don't know who he is, they just call him the man, right? This is just another great depiction of that dream he had. Now brother, older brothers are calling younger brother the man and just keep going over and over. The man said, hey, this is what the man said, right? So we see this over and over and over. The man solemnly warned us saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send us, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel, that's Jacob, it's his other name. Israel said, why did you treat me so badly? So he's going to complain about this because he's special treat. He's treating uh, Benjamin now as a special son. But what I want you to see this, what I want you to see is we see Judah. We see Judah. He steps up as a brother. He's the only brother that we see step up at this moment. And I want you, I want you to think about, we've already mentioned him earlier in the story. Why would Judah step up this moment? Because if you remember a few chapters back, Judah, the one who slept with Tamar, the one who admitted his sin, the one who experienced the gospel, experienced the grace of God. God has already been at work in Judah's heart. God has already been recreating him into a new man. God has already been convicting him of sin and bringing about repentance in Judah's life. If you remember, Judah was humiliated. He was guilty. But then he experienced the freedom that's only found in seeing our weakness and then feeling the gracious forgiveness of God. So because of that, Judah now is a different man. So when dad says, I don't want you to send Benjamin, Benjamin's staying back here, go get some more food. Judah steps up to dad and says, dad, did you forget what the man said? The man said he won't, ta- he won't give us any more food unless we bring Benjamin with us. And now look what he does. Let's keep reading. Uh, verse eight. And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me, that's Benjamin, send Benjamin with me and look, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of safety from my hand. You shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Whoa. Because of what God has already been doing in Judah's life, Judah is a different man. And Judah steps up to lead the family at a great cost to himself. Right? Jacob, the father, does not want Benjamin to go. He's already lost one son, Joseph. He's already got another son in prison. He doesn't want to send another son. He doesn't want this favorite son to go. And Judah steps up and goes, let me take him. Let his blood be on my hands. 
Let me bear the guilt for this brother. Judah steps up to lead at a great cost to himself. I will be the pledge to his safety. I will take responsibility. It's on me. Men, young men, you better hear this. Judah steps up. This is what men do who have experienced grace. It's so liberating to know I am a sinner and I have been graciously forgiven. It's liberating to know that. Judah's experienced that. You know that you've already been approved of by God and I don't have to fear fear failure anymore. So many men in this culture were so caught up in legalism and self-righteousness. We're afraid to take a next step. We're afraid to take a new job. We're afraid to ask the woman to marry me. We're afraid to step into a, a, a challenging situation. Why? Because what will happen if I fail? Judah goes on to say, I will bear the blame forever. The Hebrew actually reads, I will have sinned. If I don't come back to you, if I don't succeed, I will have sinned. This is substitution we see here. He says, let me bear the sin of this situation. Let me carry the weight of the situation. Let it be on me. Men, this is what it means to be a man. This is what, it, this is what men who have experienced the gospel, we carry weight. This is what it means to lay down our lives for our wife and our family. We stand in the gap for people. We pick up the broken. We work on the church. We work on God's kingdom. We go after the lost. This is what it means. So Judah doesn't just step up. Oh, I love this. He doesn't just step up. He steps in. See, some of us, we want to step up. Call me leader. (gasps) Got those men. Want their wife to submit to them. That's the only verse in the Bible they remember. (laughs) Women, you know you're supposed to submit to me. It's the only verse. Just... I give you permission. Do it. All right. Say that's from Justin. All right. Right. Men who step up. Don't forget. We step in and take the weight and take the blame and take the responsibility. If your marriage isn't going well, men, it's on you. You're meant to cultivate the wife. You're meant to lead the children. You're meant to raise the godly. You're meant to do it. If it's not going well, it's on you. Step up, step in, bear the weight, bear the responsibility, bear the blame, bear the guilt. It's on you. You got big shoulders. I love Mark Driscoll says that men are like trucks. They drive straighter when they got a heavy load. We're meant to carry weight. That's what we're meant to do. Judah doesn't just step up, he steps in. If this goes bad, it's on me. I'll take the pain. I'll absorb the wrath. I'll receive the punishment. See, people who haven't really experienced grace, they can't do this. People don't, who don't believe the gospel or they struggle believing the gospel, they rarely step in. Why? Why? Why do they rarely step in? Because their greatest nightmare is humiliation. What if it goes bad? What will people say? What will people think about me? They can't bear the thought of taking a hit to their reputation. See, that's self-righteousness. Worried about your reputation. So people who struggle to walk in the grace of the gospel are oftentimes stressed out. They take criticism badly. If you're self-righteous, you find it hard, excuse me, you find it hard to relax. You get really proud with your own successes and you get envious at the successes of others. You compare yourselves to others constantly. 
Keeping a mental checklist with their status in relation to others. How am I doing? Well, if they got that, then I deserve that. Or if they're doing, oh, you know, I saw him sin at that, so I'm really not that bad. Like to keep this checklist of other people. But Judah here, look at Judah. Judah lays down his reputation. He steps up in leadership and steps out and steps in in sacrifice, taking the consequences upon himself. Man, this is a great example for us. And it's interesting that in the, this is the first book of the Bible, the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. And in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, that Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. See, Judah right here, Jesus comes from the line of Judah. Judah is Jesus's great, 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 whatever, how many, granddaddy. Okay? Judah, the one who steps up and steps in and says, I'll bear the wrath, I'll bear the punishment, I'll take the sin upon myself. What a coincidence. People who say that the gospel is in the New Testament and the Old Testament is not in the Old Testament, oh, they don't even get it. The gospel is all over the Old Testament. See, Judah, in a way, though he was a real person, He was also a type of Christ. See, Jesus is the true and better Judah who steps up and steps in to take all the wrath, all the punishment, and all the pain that we deserve for our sins and for our rebellion. Jesus steps up and Jesus steps in and Jesus absorbs all of that in himself. So when we see Judah stepping in, we should hear Jesus stepping in, Jesus taking our pain for us. Look at verse 11. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land. So he's basically just going to load them down with the best stuff Canaan has to offer. I love it. Honey and balm and gum and myrrh and pistachio nuts and almonds. He just loads them down with the best stuff that they've got. And he says, okay, take this and take, remember their money got given back to them. So they think they got away with a free lunch. Right? And in business, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. So if something got put in our bags, okay, we're in trouble. So now they bring double the payment. They bring this loaded with the best Canaan has to offer. And he says, all right, go on. Take Benjamin and go back and, and see what your brother will do. So Jacob relents, or he doesn't know he's his brother, but Jacob relents and allows him to go. He loads them down with all the good food that Canaan has to offer, and it is the best thing that a godly father can do. He prays for his boys, and he pronounces a benediction over them, and then he sits them down, and he has a good cry. Right? Look at verse 14. He puts his hand on him. He says, May God Almighty, El Shaddai, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin, And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. This term, I am bereaved, it means that I am now childless. It's the same term, uh, same Hebrew term as one who has had a miscarriage or one who is barren or loses all their children. Jacob is now releasing his children into the hands of God. 
He's been holding on to them. He's been trying to control. Come on, parents, you better listen to this. He's been trying to control them, protect them, and be that kind of mother hen over them and not let Benjamin get in trouble, not let Benjamin get hurt. I'm going to be the sovereign God that can control the outcome of my children. I can create this perfect world that nothing bad can happen to my children. Parents, anybody ever been there, done that? And now God is pulling, God is pushed him and backed him into a corner in such a way that there's no way out of this. If he wants to live, he has to let go of Benjamin. If he wants to live, he's got to send him into Egypt. And parents, this is our job as parents. Our job is to raise kids so they leave. Please hear that in this culture. Remember, kids used to leave at 18. All right, I raised you 18 years. Good job. Good luck at college. Go on. Right? Now, they're 30 years old and they're back. And I don't know, you know, I just not really settled down yet. Right? I'm working on, I'm working on prestiging Call of Duty. I don't think I could prestige if I had to pay bills in my own house. You know, my mom really needs me. My mom really needs me at home. She really likes me better. No, we raise kids to leave. They're meant to be arrows. And what are arrows for? To be shot out. (laughs) Right? So parents, that's what we're doing. Raising them to release them. Let go. Let go. Pry your fingers off of your children and let them go. Right? And I love this. There's something really powerful in a father or a mother laying their hands on their kids and pronouncing a powerful scriptural benediction over them. Parents, do this at night over your kids. Pray that God would watch them and God would keep them and God would protect them and God would raise them up to fear him and God would raise them up to know them. God would take their hard heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Pray these things over your kids. I pray over my son every time I put him to bed and I I lay my hands and say, God, give him a strong back and a soft heart. Make him a warrior for you that will protect his mom and protect his sisters and, and will fight for you if he needs to and stand up to bullies if he needs to, but a soft heart, a heart of compassion, a heart that knows you and loves you. And obeys me. I throw that in there. Come on. You know I throw that in there. Verse 15. So the men took this present. And they took double the money with them. And and Benjamin. They arose and they went down to Egypt. And they stood before Joseph. Verse 16. When Joseph saw Benjamin. Now Benjamin is Joseph's uh, full brother. Other brothers, you know, they're half-brothers, different moms. Benjamin is Joseph's full brother. He said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. Look at this. Once again, Joseph is showing his brothers immense grace. First, he provided food for them when they were starving the first time. Then, not only did he provide food for them, but he gave them their money back in their bags and sent them home and said, go get Benjamin, come back and get more food. Joseph has been showing immense grace to them, totally meeting all their needs by sheer grace. And now they get there and they bring Benjamin. And guess what? He has this servant prepare this great meal, this great feast to them. This is so like they're getting amazing grace, right? Are they not? Right? How do these brothers respond to amazing grace? Look at verse 18. And the men were afraid. Hold on. You go to a king's house. 
He's happy to see you. He says, make dinner, kill the fattened calf, let's party. And these guys are in fear. Why? Why would they be afraid? Look what they say. And they said, it is because of the money. <laughs> Which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may, look at, so that he may assault us. Joseph, he's throwing a party so that he could kill us. He wants to beat us up. And what else? And buy us a little, and, or no, I'm sorry, assault us and fall upon us and make us servants and seize our donkeys. He's the prime minister of Egypt. He's really looking, oh, that's a, man, I need that ass right there. Really? He's the second powerful man in the world and they think they want his donkeys. He doesn't want their donkeys. But listen, why do they think like this? Joseph is showing them immense grace and they're responding with thinking evil thoughts about him. Thinking he's cruel, thinking he's a taskmaster. Why? Listen, these boys know nothing of grace. They're self-righteous since birth. They've been born into the covenant family. They've been circumcised as a mark of the covenant. They're God's chosen people. They've heard all the stories about how God's helped their forefathers and their fore- and all the patriarchs. And they think they're good people. And they even said in the last chapter, we are honest men. They think they're God-fearing people. They're good little church boys. But they're sinners at heart. They're liars and thieves. They're hard, their hearts are hard, so therefore, see, their own hard, self-righteous hearts make Joseph out to be a bully and a tyrant. They malign his character and they reject his grace as a ploy to destroy them. No doubt, because these brothers only fear judgment, because that is what was in their hearts. See, if they were in Joseph's position... This is how they would treat other people. You know how, you, how much you believe the gospel or how the gospels change your heart by how you treat those under you. How do you treat that waitress who did a horrible job? Like, I know people who are served and served and served by others and then they go, you know, like, maybe they're poor or whatever it is and then they go to Applebee's and the first time in their life, there's somebody underneath them. And all of a sudden they're Kings of Applebee's shaking their glass, right? They need, they need our ice. And there goes your tip, honey. Right. My meat is, a, I said, medium rare, right? This looks way more medium. They become little Kings and Queens. That's what happens when we have a self righteous heart. And we see that in the brothers. But what we see here is that Joseph now, he's hosting a meal for his brothers who 13 years before had thrown him in a pit and then callously, if you remember what happened, they threw him in the pit. And then what they do? Sat down to eat their lunch while he's dying in the pit. They actually, now they're actually afraid that Joseph is actually like them. Calloused, hard-hearted, that he will treat them like they had treated Joseph. See, these brothers are a stranger to grace. And we see that again in how they respond. Look at verse 19. 
So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and they spoke with him at the door of the house. And they said, um, um, I love this right here. I can see them drawing straws. Okay. Who's the best speaker among all the brothers? All right. You got a good looking face. You know what I mean? You, you go say it. So they go up to the steward of the house and they go, and this is a well-prepared speech. Oh my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and whoa, there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we brought it again with us and we have brought our money down with us to buy more food. We do not know who put money in our sacks. So what are they doing? This is the best of human maneuvering, right? Okay. He might kill us at this meal. So let's go to a steward and let's make everything right. Let's figure out, okay, I think they're offended. I think they're hurt. So I'm going to figure out how to a way that I can maneuver this. And I can maneuver this situation to make it look like it's not really as bad as it was. Okay. So they're maneuvering now. They're still resisting grace. And they, they go, they, they tell them the whole story. And we don't know what happened. And look what happened. Look what, look what they say. here. Verse 23. <clears throat> The servant replies, peace to you. Do not be afraid. This is an Egyptian, guys. This is a pagan. Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon. That's the brother who was in prison or kept behind. Then he brought Simeon out to them. From the mouth of a pagan comes gospel words. Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God did this. I can imagine these brothers. Whoa. I thought we're the covenant people. I thought we had the inside road to God. I thought we're the only ones who knew our God. This pagan is speaking to me, telling me peace to me. Peace. Shalom. Speaking my words, speaking my language. Telling me that God did this? Shocking. Absolutely shocking. For those of you in here, and you don't know how, you don't know how to rest, you don't know how to be at peace, you are constantly busy trying to prove yourself, trying to convince yourself and others that you're a good person, that you're good enough. Would you please hear this beautiful gospel message from a pagan? Peace. Chill out. Stop your maneuvering. Put down your masquerade of being a good person. Stop trying to work for your salvation or work for your identity or your your, um, reputation. Stop trying to work for something that you can never earn. You can never be a good person. Chill out. God has put money in your sacks. God is the one who gives us our justification. God is the one who makes us right with God and man. God is the one who pays our debt. Chill out and enjoy the peace that he alone can give. God is gracious. So we don't have to prove ourselves any longer. And in verse 23, we see then what's the guy do? He says, peace, chill out. He brings out Simeon. This is shocking. The brothers' jaws are dropping. What were they expecting? They were expected to be beaten. They're expecting their camels to be taken away. And what do they do? He brings the brother out. He brings Simeon out of bondage. The absolute opposite of what they expected is what Joseph does. 
See, grace is shocking to us. If it's not shocking, you don't get it. If grace is not shocking to you, you don't get it. Grace is the opposite of human nature. See, they expected to be brought in and imprisoned, but the opposite happens. Simeon is brought out and set free. Grace is liberating. Look at verse 29, what Joseph says. And he lifted up his eyes. This is Joseph. And he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. And he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? Still playing the part. He says this. God be gracious to you, my son. Now, this is not a common greeting. The normal greeting is shalom, peace to you, peace be with you. But God's amazing grace has melted Joseph's heart of stone. And now Joseph is giving us the purpose of this whole ruse that he's putting on. All of this maneuvering, this whole trick, Joseph's giving us the purpose. Grace to you, my son unmerited favor to you, my son. How will the brothers respond to the special grace being shown to Benjamin? Right? How are the brothers going to respond to this? The last time special grace was shown to one of their brothers, they ended up hating him and selling him into slavery. What are they going to do this time? Joseph's playing it out. What are you going to do, brothers? Are you still the same way? Are you going to respond the same way? When somebody gets ahead of you, when somebody's chosen and you're not, you're still going to respond with that self-righteous attitude. And this next verse just shows us Joseph's heart. Verse 30. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber, and he wept. What? He's not trying to exact revenge from his brothers. He's trying to show them the extreme grace of God. The same grace that God has shown him. That Joseph was an arrogant, brash, little self-righteous man. And God chose him and God put him in a prison so he could shape him, so he could experience grace, so he could be changed and experience the forgiveness of God. And God has forgiven so much in Joseph that now Joseph is wanting to share that grace with his brothers. Look at this change we see in Joseph. There's a common thought that goes in our culture that says people don't change. That's not true. I've seen dozens of people at Sacred City change over the last two years. I've seen hard-hearted, self-righteous people experience the grace of God and literally change. I've seen people addicted to things and addicted to money be set free from the love of money and give liberally and lay their lives down for others. I've seen people with a poverty mindset lay lay that down at the foot of the cross and serve others. I've seen and witnessed God change people. I myself have been changed by the gospel. God still changes people. And he changes Joseph from a hard-hearted, self-righteous little boy to a grace, a gracious, humble man of God. This man who once 
bragged about being daddy's favorite now weeps with compassion. Can I ask you this morning? If you're standing before people who've mistreated you, does your heart grow warm with compassion? Or does it grow cold with resentment and revenge? When you have the opportunity to get back at someone who's hurt you, they've snubbed you on a business deal, they lied behind your back, they sent an ugly email, they tried to shipwreck something or get in your way, they called the city about all these different things. Does your heart grow warm with compassion towards them? Or does it grow, grow cold with bitterness and revenge and resentment? See, if it grows warm with compassion, and that, like it does here, this is a sign of a gospel-shaped heart. Heart that's experienced the grace of God. See, Joseph has to actually remove himself because he's so overcome with emotion. It's kind of weird. Prime, can you imagine? The prime minister of Egypt just starts bawling. Sees Benjamin, biting his lip. He's trying to choke it back. He takes off so he can go weep. The world doesn't do this. What's the difference between the church and the world? Not much most of the time. But people, Christians, who have really experienced the gospel, the world cannot produce this. Compassion towards those who hurt you. Compassion towards those who persecute you. Compassion towards those who marginalize you. This is what we should be experts in, Christians. Being warm with those who malign us and lie about us and cheat on us. This is what we should be experts in. Why? Because we've maligned and lied and cheated and God has came after us and God has given us grace so we can freely give that grace to others. Let me ask you, how do you treat those who have hurt you? What would you do here? In these difficult moments, see, our, our true heart is revealed. When we could get even, we choose to give grace. When we could choose revenge, we choose to give grace. Because if we do choose revenge, we show that we don't really get the gospel. You're going to pay someone back for what they did. You don't really get the gospel. You're going to post on her wall and send an ugly message to her because she did this and she said that. And she, you don't get the gospel. We get this picture one time where Saul, Saul was the king of Israel. And, and God said, I'm going to take this man down and put David in your place. And so Saul knew that God had pulled him down and God was going to exalt David. And Saul didn't want to have anything to do with it. So Saul started trying to kill David, literally throwing spears at him. David, play that funky music you play. Boom, 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 boom. White boy's playing music. Boom, he's throwing spears at him. Right? Trying to kill him. And then listen, and then he has a flea and he's hiding in a cave. It's hilarious. Saul has to go to the bathroom. So Saul comes over into his cave and he does his business and David's right there. Like, oh, like David's there and David takes his sword and David just cuts a piece of his tunic. And David, and he walks out and all of David's men go, what are you doing? Why didn't you cut his throat? Why didn't you kill him? He's been trying to kill you and God has delivered your enemy into your hands. And he says, touch not 
The Lord's anointed. I'm not going to take revenge on this man. I'll let God deal with his king. I'll let God deal with this man. It's amazing. David has experienced the grace of God and therefore can freely give the grace of God to Saul. He doesn't take revenge. That's what it means to be people of grace. Look at verse 31. Then he washed... So he cleans himself up. He washed. I'm sorry, it's, we're going a little long. Then he uh, washed his face. He comes out, controlling himself. He said, serve the food. They served him by himself. And then they themselves, they, okay, we don't need to go there. I'm going to skip that part. The ruse is not over. He fixes himself. He comes out. He's wanting to play this out. This has still got to continue to play out. He's still got to teach him some things. Verse 33, he sits them. This is pretty crazy. He sits the brothers in order, in birth order. He lays them out from oldest to youngest. Can you imagine the brothers? I want you, he's got placemats on the table. Their names on the table and their oldest to youngest. This has got, and it says they were amazed. Listen, this is awesome, man. I, this, this story is phenomenal. Joseph is owning these guys. I mean, I'm literally thinking they're sitting there going, he's a God. I think this guy's a God. This guy knows everything. Right? He lines them up. They're freaking out. What is he going to do? He lines us up. This guy knows everything about us. This guy can put money in our sacks. We don't even know how he does it. This guy, you know, there is something special about this guy. These brothers, and then what happened? Right? Uh, he, he, he sat down before, okay, verse 34. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. Stop. And, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much. Still special treatment showed to Benjamin. How are they going to react when one brother's given special grace? He feeds them. Listen, in the gospel of grace, we can sit down with our enemies and treat them like family. Right here. These brothers are eating from the king's table. What, you know what you're about to see? They get drunk on the king's wine. They still believe Joseph to be a cruel and vindictive man, but they're eating at his table and they're receiving his grace. Can you see this? This is a picture of the gospel. They have not repented. They have not turned from their sins. They've not become good little church boys. They are mean. They think God is mean. They think Joseph, the one in authority, is mean and vindictive, but they're sitting and they're eating at his table and they're drinking his wine. They're receiving of his grace. What do these brothers deserve for all their sins and all their backbiting and all their lying and all their trickery? What do they deserve? They deserve what they thought. They deserve what he said in verse 18. They deserve to be beaten and thrown into prison. They deserve death, hell, and judgment. That's what they deserve from Joseph. Joseph should have stood up there and go, remember when you threw me in the pit? Now I have the power. I could hear that song. I didn't want to do it, but I heard, I got the power, right? And now I got it. And I'm going to take you, boom, and I'm going to kill you. Or I'm going to throw you into prison. Or I'm going to make you my slaves. Joseph has the power. He has the right to do it. But what does he do? He feasts with them. Gives them good wine and gives them good food. See, in the gospel of grace, we can break bread with those who wish us harm. Who malign our character. Because we remember that is exactly what God did with us. When we were his enemies, Jesus came and ate with us. He showed us grace and he saved us and he gave us new hearts when we didn't want anything to do with him. 
See, these brothers have not repented and yet they're dining at the table of grace. Romans tells us the kindness of God is meant to bring us to repentance. Scripture says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Come, dine at the table of grace. You don't deserve it, but the meal's been prepared for you. God is so good and he does good. This is grace. These ruthless, self-righteous sinners are getting what they don't deserve. They're getting the unmerited favor of Joseph, which is meant to point them to the unmerited favor of God. And how do they respond? Like good, old-fashioned sinners. That's how. Verse 34, at the end, and they drank and this really ticks me off. The ESV guys really needed some more cojones when they translated this. And they drank and were merry with him. And if you see a little two, you come and look down. The Hebrew is, and they drank and became intoxicated. They got drunk. These brothers sat down at the table of grace and got wasted. Sacred City, do not miss this. Do not miss this. Jesus is also, he was the true and better Judah, but Jesus is also the true and better Joseph. He sits in authority at the right hand of God and we have sinned against him. We have betrayed him just like these brothers have betrayed Joseph. How many times, how many times have you done things that you're not proud of? How many times have you done things that you're ashamed of? Things that you, um, that God would call sin but you've covered them up, hoping no one will find them out. You know, you shifted the numbers in that business deal. You went a little too far. You had sex outside of marriage. You, you did those, whatever that thing is. But you don't want anybody to find out about it. You covered them up, right? That's, the t- that's what we do most of the time with our sin, isn't it? We, if somebody catches us, we kind of give them the prettiest picture of it, the best version possible. We hide our sin, hoping no one will discover that we did things that we're ashamed of. These brothers, that shame, that guilt is weighing heavy on them. They've never repented. They've never confessed. They've never turned from it. God knows those things. You don't fool God. You can't trick God. You can't hide things from him. These brothers thought they had gotten away with their sin against their brother. And that all was left for them was to manage their guilt the rest of their life. And just kind of put their head down and push forward and be good people. Be honest men. But God who knows all, who even knows our thoughts and the thoughts of our heart, scripture says. He knew what they needed most was redemption. And redemption only comes through grace. See, all those wrong things that we've done in our life have actually been sins against God as our creator. Through our disobedience, we have betrayed him. It was our sin that killed Jesus on the cross. And if you're not willing to own your sin, listen to me, please. If you're not willing to own your sin and admit, I'm not a righteous person. The only people that get into heaven are righteous and that's not me. So I can't get into heaven through any of my good works. God's not going to look at me and go, you're pretty good. Your good deeds outweigh your bad. 
I'm not righteous. There's no one righteous. I am not a good person. If you can't admit that, you will never experience grace. And Christian, hear me. That's not a one-time decision. Well, I, went, I, I remember when I used to be a sinner. You mean like now? Right? It's not a one-time decision. You walk the aisle and that's that. This is a constant reminder. Paul, the apostle, right? I'm the worst of the worst. I'm the, I'm the worst sinner. No, you're not. You're rocking it out. You're taking beatings for the gospel, right? Shipwreck. I want another ship. He gets a ship. Shipwreck that one. Give me another one. Get some sticks. Snake bitten. I'll shake it off. I'm good. Beaten. I'm up. Ready to go. Feeling good today. What the? You couldn't stop that guy. And what does he say about himself? I'm the worst of the worst. If you're not willing to admit your sin and your constant need for grace, you'll never get to experience grace. You want to know why people call grace amazing grace? Because it's amazing. That's why. We deserve death and hell. And Jesus had to die to pay the price for our sins. But instead of being cruel and vindictive, Jesus graciously forgives our sin. Like we see Joseph here and he invites us into a feast to eat with him. He doesn't just forgive us. He wants us to find our complete satisfaction in him. He wants our bellies to be full in the gospel. It's no coincidence, guys. Food's played a big role here. It's no coincidence in the book of Revelation. At the end times when Jesus comes back and he renews all of creation, one of the things we get to do is go to the marriage supper of the Lamb. If I can, I'm getting drunk at that table. I'm telling you. I don't know if I can. Probably can't get inebriated, you know, like you can on earth. But I'm drinking and I'm feasting with Jesus in the presence of God. It's going to be amazing. God is inviting us into that feast. Come to this feast. Get drunk on his grace. Listen, the cost of this meal, it's high. Remember I said, there's no such thing as a free lunch. These brothers get a free lunch, but guess what? There's a bill. It's Joseph's bill. The bill for your forgiveness, the bill for your meal of grace. The bill is high. The cost was high, but God paid for it himself with the precious blood of his son. We partake now by sheer grace. Come and eat. Rejoice in this meal that you're invited into by sheer grace. Our God is gracious and we don't have to prove ourselves any longer. I want to end as we come to the Lord's table. First off, if you're an unbeliever, Maybe you never heard the gospel. Maybe you thought coming to church meant I was going to be a good person. And if I'm a good person, I change my life and become like moral and religious and I do the right things. Then God will let me into heaven. I hope you hear that's other religions. That's other. That's not Christianity. Christianity is we admit we're absolute sinners in total dependence on the grace of God. And we look with the eyes of faith. We look to Jesus Christ. And we believe in him and God graciously forgives us and imputes to us the righteousness of God. He says, now you're perfect, just like my son. Now you're righteous because of Jesus' work counted as yours. 
Now you're righteous. And if that's you this morning, I ask you just place your faith in Jesus, turn from your sins and turn to him. Keep coming back, hearing more of the gospel, join a missional community, get involved with us. And if you're a religious person, if you're a Christian, you've been Christian 10, 15, 20 years, I hope you heard the gospel, the scandalous, amazing news of the grace, and you turn from all your good works. You don't stop doing them. You do them in faith and instead of self-righteousness. And I hope you repent as we come to the table. And I want to close with this um, quote from Heinrich Bullinger, one of the uh, early Protestant reformers. Uh, most people know Calvin and, and Luther, but he's prominent as well. As bread nourishes and strengthens man and gives him ability to labor, so the body of Christ, eaten by faith, feeds and satisfies the soul of man and furnishes the whole man to all duties of godliness. As wine is drink to the thirsty and makes merry the hearts of men, so the blood of our Lord Jesus, drunken, drunken in faith, quenches the thirst of the burning conscience and fills the hearts of the faithful with unspeakable joy. Keep that up there, Adam. Gracious Father, I thank you for giving us this meal of grace. The, the bread which is the body of Christ given to us, broken for us. The blood which is the blood of Christ spilled for us. May we eat it and partake and may it be fuel for our godly living. May it work itself out in every cell of our body. May this meal be eaten and partaken of by sheer grace. We didn't, pro we didn't provide it. We didn't work for it. We didn't earn it. It's given to us. May we eat like Christians this, this afternoon. In Jesus' name, amen.